brought to you by Penguin. What I do in the book is trace the inception of the idea of a white race to a particular Very specific year. specific year. Yeah. yeah. In the <laughs> yeah. 17th century, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And from its first inception, it is created in order to promote the idea that white people are superior and that black people are inferior. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. This is a space in which we invite authors to discuss their inspirations, their aspirations, and the stories behind the works they present to us. Each episode, our guest brings with them a selection of objects that have influenced them and their writing, and then we explore why. My guest today is a social historian, broadcaster, and the author of the 2019 bestseller, Don't Touch My Hair. Alongside finishing her PhD, juggling teaching and broadcasting commitments, and sitting on the judging panel for the Murky Books New Writers Prize, her latest book, What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition, was published this month to great acclaim. Described as an incisive and deeply practical essay about transforming demonstrations of support of racial justice into real and meaningful change, she's credited with cutting through the haze of online discourse to offer clear advice, delivered with characteristic wit and clarity to create a roadmap to liberation. It is, of course, my great pleasure to welcome to the Penguin podcast, Emma Dabbery. Hi, Emma. Hi. How are you? Great to have you here. I'm good. I'm good. I'm really good. Um, What do you use Twitter for? I was interested because as I was reading this book, there's quite a few comments about social media and how people kind of perform on social media. What does it mean to you? Yeah, I think its meaning has really changed, you know, um, like when I started using it, it was um, for me an incredible tool to connect with um, often like a lot of other scholars, um, people who were like PhD students or academics or activists who were involved in you know, different scholarship around blackness and African studies and black studies and all of these kind of things, especially, you know, people in the States and and other parts of the world that I didn't have like a geographical proximity to. And people would share studies and I would have really interesting kind of thought provoking conversations with people. Um, And then increasingly over the years, it changed and it went from being a space where people were sharing ideas and writing that were kind of like grounded in research to ideas and writing that were, um, I mean, the whole political climate kind of changed and we entered into the era of fake news. And I really saw the kind of the, the discourse changing and just becoming like increasingly adversarial, accusatory, toxic, inaccurate, ahistoric. And it's just kind of like, I don't know, like a cesspit now. (laughs) Does it have any role in activism whatsoever anymore? Like at the moment, I would say Twitter probably like at a push does, yeah, does more harm than good. It's really like distorted a lot of causes and issues and discourse However, 
I do think it's good for um, disseminating information, kind of news that's not necessarily being covered in mainstream channels or events that are happening, how people are meeting up, how people are gathering, I guess like that form of um, organizing. Yeah, it does have use and, and potential, but I feel like so much of its potential is is squandered. Has it allowed people to mistake conversation for action and think that by the very nature of having a conversation, they've done enough? Yeah, completely. Like we always hear like, oh, we have to have the conversation. Like the word conversation has been elevated to you know, kind of like a preposterous status. And it seems to just be a replacement for organized kind of more concrete action. And um, there's a part of the book where I quote um, a scholar of African-American studies, George Lipsitz, where he talks about like, what are the consistent set of demands that exist in the contemporary racial justice movement? And he asks, like, where are the parallel institutions? Where are the things like the land banks, the the schools, the breakfast clubs? Where are all of those um, community grassroots organizations and parallel institutions that were being built in previous moments? You know, when people were kind of like working in the communities on the ground rather than atomized in their own kind of silos. And of course, with the pandemic, that's only like exacerbated the lack of connection and the kind of individualism and the, the, the replacement, it seems, of a lot of that type of organizing with just uh, words and, and rhetoric and quote unquote conversation. Were you always inclined towards putting the words white people on the cover of this book? Um, no, I have a real reservation <laughs> mm. with the title. The title is a provocation. And I think by the third page, I have deconstructed it and, and spoken about my um, reluctance to actually uh, to use a generic term to kind of give instruction to like a group of, of, of people that are, you know, which a lot of diversity um, exists amongst white people aren't a monolith either, you know? So I kind of, um, I set it up because that's very much the language of the current movement. So I kind of, you know, just reproduce that to disassemble it and to kind of write against it in a way. Is it possible for a white person to say I'm white and I'm proud to be white without a whole heap of negative connotations being piled upon them for making that statement? Well, I mean, if one has an awareness of what whiteness was created, invented, codified into law to do within the, because obviously the white racial category is a construct. What I do in the book is trace the inception of the idea of a white race to a particular a year. specific year. Yeah. yeah. In the yeah. 17th century, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And from its first inception, it is created in order to promote the idea, like fundamental to its, to its construction is the notion of superiority, that white people are superior and that black people are inferior. And that 
tenant is central to the construction and that's never been properly reckoned with. So to announce your pride in that, it speaks volumes. I mean, I find nationalism problematic for many reasons, but at the same time, I completely understand a pride in one's heritage and culture. You know, I'm, I feel proud of my Irishness. I, 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 I love Irish culture. I have, I've had a complicated relationship with, with being Irish and, and being black. Um, but I, I, I understand somebody having like a pride in their culture and their heritage, but to have a pride in whiteness specifically, either the person is ignorant of the history or knows the history and feels proud of that. And if that's what they feel proud of, well, that's very revealing. So it's not possible for them to disassociate themselves from from 1661 or laws no, that were ordained in, in Virginia. It didn't end there. It just grew. Well, it began there. It, be, yeah, it, be, yeah, it began yeah. there. Yeah. But yeah. I, I only identify, um, you know, that point to kind of like, so that we can understand the constructed and fictitious nature of it as a construct. It's something I write about in the book is it's one that has to be continuously like reinvested in and strengthened and kind of buttressed. So, you know, in the 19th century, you see the beginning of, far, far more recently, you see the beginning of scientific racism and the, 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 the embracing of this idea in the sciences that um, the black and white, quote unquote, races are distinctly different species to each other and that the inferiority of black people and non-white people can actually be you know, proven and evidenced in science. That's happening, you know, in the 19th century. And from there we have well, eugenics colonialism. Well, eugenics in the 20th century. We, we have I mean, eugenics and we have yeah. colonialism, which is, again, central to, like, the colonialism of Africa and Asia is the belief and investment in an English superiority and a white superiority. Um, so while this starts in the 17th century, it's continuously <laughs> reinvested in. Yes, I mean, you only have to read some of the reactions to Satnam Sanghera's book, Empire Land, to know that there are still some people who very much uphold those values. Uh, let's get to your first object. Unsurprisingly, for someone who is so well-read and that, of course, screams out of every page of this book, it's bookshelves. <laughs> Make bookshelves interesting to me, Emma Dabbery. <laughs> Oh, wow. Um, so, you know... <laughs> Tell it, me it, they're made from some exotic wood or something, at least. They are actually... The, the particular bookshelf I'm talking, I'm speaking of is made from um, salvaged wood, painted by my, by my own fair hand. Perfect. Um, a dusty pink. Um, <laughs> but it's more what the bookshelf contains. Of course. So my house is, like, full of bookshelves, and I, I don't have enough bookshelves to store all my books. So I actually just have like dusty piles of books, towers of books like <laughs> everywhere. Um, but there's one particular bookshelf like um, over, well, there's four shelves, but there's like two, two of those shelves just really have the, the books that I always return to, you know, that are just like incredibly like well thumbed and dog-eared and full of post-it notes. And um, they would mostly be books, you know, pertaining to the black radical tradition. So books like Futures of Black Radicalism, The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Study, 
and then like post-colonial texts, African studies, literature, um, some some kind of like key books from Baldwin that that I that I refer to often. And actually some white authors like George Lipsitz, who's who I reference in the book, is a is a white American uh, scholar of African-American studies and a really like inspired thinker. Quite a lot of Mark Fisher as well. He's actually on a different shelf because he doesn't kind of he's not kind of in my black radical section. But I do refer to, um, you know, Mark Fisher quite a lot as well. So um, why is a rap on race, Margaret Mead and James Baldwin, a particularly important book for you? You reference it a number of times in this book. Yeah, I'd never read it before because it's out of print. I was interested that it was Baldwin in conversation with this white woman who was a very famous public intellectual at the time. And it was them grappling with the kind of burning question of the moment, which was like race and racism and the relationship between black and white. And, you know, as a historian, I'm like, oh, that has such a kind of synergy to what's happening now. And um, I was just like shocked by the by the parallels this conversation is happening 50 years ago it could be happening now you know does it depress you when you read something that's 50 years old and you think so little has changed i mean i feel like the 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 root of the matter has not really been tackled um so i'm not entirely surprised that we are where we are if we could build on the work of our forebears rather than starting again from scratch, I think we'd make more progress. At the same time, I completely don't lay the blame for where we are at the hands of activists and those that fight against these forces. The forces that kind of um, facilitate this are kind of highly organised, deep-rooted, there's a quote from, like, again, George Lipsitz that I'd like to re- respond to that with. Good intentions and spontaneity are not adequate in the face of a relentlessly oppressive and powerful, well-financed military and economic political system. Um, so, yeah, I don't think diversifying our feeds is going to cut it. Um, let's diversify our objects and go from a bookshelf... <laughs> to incense and a ceramic incense holder. Yeah. So I have this incense that I've burned for years that just really um, grounds me and makes me feel relaxed and at peace. And it's actually like a very mysterious incense to me because um, I buy it in this Japanese store. I know it comes from Japan, but I don't know anything else about it because it comes wrapped in white paper bound together with a little piece of twine. All I know is how it looks, how it smells and how kind of like therapeutic and soothing I find it. It's quite like a um, unperfumed smell, kind of neutral and kind of natural, like evocative of kind of I don't know, being in a pine forest or something, but like not in an overbearing way. I'm quite easily pleased in some ways. Oh, it's, it's beautiful that something so simple can be so evocative. What is the setup then to create the ideal atmosphere for you to sit and write? Mm, I don't think I, I, I don't necessarily have the ideal atmosphere. <laughs> I don't necessarily have the ideal setup at home. <laughs> um, 
I live in like an open plan apartment, which before lockdown was um, fine. But like during lockdown, not really having any walls and having two very young children who were home all the time made like the little alcove space that I had previously written in, but that didn't have any doors to kind of distinguish it from like the living space that became, you know, not, <laughs> not the place that I could really like write in peace. So I just started working in like, um, yeah, like a co-working space. Um, my dream place to be writing would probably be a little cottage in like the Aran Islands or like in rural Ireland or somewhere in the West of Ireland, just looking out on that, like particularly kind of rugged and windswept landscape. And then my other one would be in the American South somewhere in like a kind of Southern Gothic <laughs> type, type house. But um, as yet, that's, that, that's not my reality <laughs> where I'm writing, <laughs> but I can dream. <laughs> yes. Have you looked at real estate prices in that area and then calculated the royalties on the books that you have to sell in order to be able to buy this set piece of <laughs> Uh, landscape that you wish to write from? I haven't yet. <laughs> it's a good tip. <laughs> it is a good, it's a good tip. You're very thorough in your research, so I'm suggesting that you should carry that over uh, to your dreams as well. Let's move on because we're going to take a listen now to an extract from the audiobook edition. It comes from a chapter titled Interrogate Capitalism. As the rich get richer, the rest of us will be left in increasingly precarious situations. In the global recession that is upon us, the powerful will double down on their control of state and cultural apparatus. They will be determined to repress or co-opt the tremulous expressions of resistance that are gaining volume as the people rise up against death. The issue of co-option is pertinent. Our articulations of dissent to often mirror the parameters of our oppression, reproducing oppressive systems, unwittingly reinforcing them or attempting to reverse them or indeed diverse them to make them more inclusive when in truth they need to dissolve. Bio Akamolafe describes our current system as a replication of the slave ship, complete with the various levels that existed on board. In actual slave ships, the captured Africans were chained in the bottom, in the dark, dank hold, with the European slavers on the top deck and living it up in the fresh air. Yet, although they were on different levels and as such had radically different experiences of the ship, they were all still aboard a vessel of destruction. Akomalafe says that inclusion today can be understood as access to the top deck of the slave ship. Inclusion is access to power in a system that is ultimately a tool of destruction. It is not enough to make exploitative systems more inclusive. Do we want to get on the top deck or do we want to destroy the goddamn ship? That was a reading from What White People Can Do Next, from Allyship to Coalition, written by Emma Dabiri and read by Emma Dabbery as well. The audiobook is available to buy now and there's a link in the programme notes of this episode. Okay, let's go to your final object now. It is a Moleskin Journal soft copy book and, and this is very important, a mechanical pencil. Not one of those old school ones. This technology is what you <laughs> crave, isn't it, Emma? 
Um, yeah, I still like make written notes and kind of jot down ideas as and when I have them. But um, I really like stationery. Um, it just makes me feel kind of like reassured and I find it, yeah, kind of like therapeutic and like calming. And I really like the feeling of the the leather bound moleskin and the kind of rich, creamy white paper and like the click of the mechanical pencil and then the sensation, the feeling when the lead from the pencil, you know, makes that indentation into the, the creamy moleskin paper. And it's just, um, just find it quite thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the purpose of this book is well no you know what the purpose of this book is <laughs> i think the better question is what do you hope the result will be of people reading this book as i say at the end i hope that it will help people draw connections between things that might not have um seen it apparent before um i think our atomized approach to issues is characteristic of the culture in which we live in and also the kind of rampant individualism that is kind of like a very much encouraged norm in our society. So it's about kind of like, you know, thinking about collectivism and also thinking about the interconnectivity of lots of issues and kind of zooming out um, to a bigger picture whereby we can see how many different forms of oppression and exploitation find their source uh, find their origin at the same source and through that cultivate this idea of, you know, coalition and solidarity, mutuality and shared interests and um, create more like inclusive movements. And I don't mean inclusive in terms of like how it's used at the moment in terms of diversity and inclusion, which is again something I talk about in the book, but I mean inclusive in that people that have even, you know, historically been pitted against each other, come to see the different ways that they might both be exploited in different ways and to varying degrees of extremity, but might identify common ground through that and be able to work together. Like one of the examples that I give in the book that I find really, really interesting and instructive is um, Fred Hampton who was the leader of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers and the work he did in the Rainbow Coalition and bringing together um, Black Panthers, Latino gangs, and then probably most surprisingly, white working class Southerners, um, a, a group called the Young Patriots. And while the Young Patriots didn't experience racism as working class white people in very poor neighborhoods, they experienced police brutality and their lifestyles, their lives were diminished by the inequalities perpetuated by capitalism. So through identifying those kind of shared experiences, you know, building, building a coalition between those groups who have been historically pitted against each other. Well, you mentioned something that blew my mind, which was the existence of the White Panthers, mm. which I'd never come across in my life. Yeah, so the White Panthers were um, founded two years after the Black Panthers, and it was in response to a question. Huey Newton, one of the co-founders of the Black Panthers, um, Huey Newton was asked what white people can do, and he said that, well, they can, they can start the White Panthers. And, I mean, this group of people took that literally and started a group called the White Panthers um, that, in contrast to allyship, were a radical group who were demanding 
equality and justice for all. So they're actually identifying the fact that they as white people don't want to be kind of exploited by the, the, the kind of dominant culture that they, that they live under. Um, they have a set of like 10 demands, which are actively, you know, about making their own lives better, but in ways that would benefit everybody in society, as opposed to what you have now. And like, you know, people aren't really having that um, communication with each other, not even necessarily between different groups, but even in the same so-called movements. It's often a lot more about like kind of like individual success and platforms than it is about like the building of kind of collectives or coalitions. Why is simply transferring privilege from white people to people of colour problematic? I mean, what does it even mean? Because how is like, if if white privilege is being defined as um, not having to deal with racism on top of whatever other um, forms of oppression or exploitation you may experience, the the privilege of not having to deal with racism... When people are talking about the transference, it seems more the demands I've seen are, you know, things like taking a pay cut, you know, not taking a job, um, not taking a promotion or calling out a brand, those kind of things. Well, that's actually quite different to what we're defining white privilege as. And so it's, it's kind of like when you're talking about money, like promotions and pay cuts and things like that, that sounds more like you're talking about economic privilege than the non-racialized privilege. So it feels like there's kind of like a contradiction between what we're defining white privilege as and then what the kind of type of demands I've seen made online suggest. And then also, if it is something like taking a pay cut or not taking a promotion, why is somebody going to feel compelled to do that in a global recession or if they're also you know economically very precarious why is anybody other than you know like a kind of white saviory type of ally or someone who's just being nice or charitable gonna feel compelled to do that like and if you think about how whiteness was mainstreamed and kind of made um was was spread and like popularized and embraced. It was through telling people that it would make their life materially better. How is like telling people that their life is going to be materially made worse a compelling narrative to uproot something that's had kind of 500 years to embed itself. You know, if you were thinking strategically that it doesn't really it doesn't really add up. We also live in a scarcity mindset. You know, we're all in competition with each other for resources. But there are there are more egalitarian ways of living and distributing resources. Is the failure for it to be compelling largely though linked to a description of uh, certainly a lot of the pushback on Black Lives Matter was on my social media was people saying, you know, it's a Marxist organization. And then from there, they get to Hugo Chavez and Venezuela and what happened there. And then suddenly you're into a situation whereby they've linked immediately a fight for equality and Black Lives Matter as well to tearing down the fact that they have a mortgage and they quite like capitalism. Yeah. So, I mean, the word Marxist is just thrown around now, like with wild abandon. Just like the word racist is. Yeah. 
completely. This is one of my issues with the with um, you know, the whole online discourse. Like words are actually just completely untethered from meaning. You know, I've I've heard like people that are openly black capitalists. I've heard them described as Marxists. And I'm just like, like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I, I think people have been really. Um, you know, brainwashed and, and kind of hoodwinked by the by the kind of scarcity mindset and this idea like, oh, you don't get something for nothing. Like I've had conversations about universal basic income with people and they're just like, oh no, you can't get something for nothing. And I'm like, if the resources are there, why can't they just be distributed more easily so that everybody, I mean, more equally, so that everybody has a, a decent and enjoyable standard of living like why are people like so hoodwinked by this idea that they're just supposed to kind of slave away like every day to to try and make ends meet until like they retire and when I say anything that the questions um capitalism people are like oh what so you're suggesting communism and I'm just like why is it binary between capitalism and communism like why are people's because everything's a binary now that's the problem isn't it everything has to be a binary yeah completely like we just need to be honest about what it is it's a system that is um requires inequality to to perpetuate itself you know like inequality is a necessary prerequisite of capitalism so even if one group whose labor is exploited who who are commodified in a certain way even if they can achieve you know a seat at the table there's gonna have to be somebody else who's being exploited so how can equality be achieved in a system where inequality is a prerequisite. You know, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. So you you reform the system rather than eradicate it because eradicating capitalism rings alarm bells for many people, doesn't it? I don't ever say eradicate capitalism, you know. I just like would would, um, urge people to interrogate capitalism because it's always seeking new markets and new consumers you know it's it's just rapacious and the earth itself cannot actually sustain this idea of infinite infinite growth it's an unsustainable system that will destroy the world so it needs to be reassessed it needs to be interrogated and that needs to be that reality of what it is like just needs to be understood and when people understand it they can come to their own conclusions amazing we could talk for hours uh before we go don't forget to follow the Penguin Podcast, comment, rate, and most of all, share. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. So thank you for doing all of those things. Finally, Emma, we like to ask our guests about a recent book that they have absolutely loved. Now, do you have one that inspires you and would inspire Penguin Podcast listeners? Yeah, I I have a book um, that I read recently that I found, I couldn't believe I'd only just read it and not discovered it before. I was going through escaped slave notices and I found a reference to um, a runaway house slave and I felt very like intrigued by her. And um, I looked at further into the person and I saw that she'd actually like written a book and her name was Harriet Jacobs and she was a house slave and she had an absolutely like horrific story the beggar's belief she ended up hiding in a hole 
in the roof of a house for seven years. But it's the only, it's written in the first person and it's the only slave narrative that focuses particularly on the, on the sexual exploitation of, of women during slavery. So it's like a really, really important document. But it's also just uh, her voice is so contemporary and she it, it feels in many ways like so modern that it's just like it's kind of mind blowing um that this 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 record of her um of her life exists. So yeah, incidents in the life of a slave girl. Emma Dabiri, thank you very much for being on the Penguin podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 